Welcome to another episode of the Woodstock Whispers podcast. This is a podcast in which we try to capture some of the oral history over the first hundred years of Camp Woodstock as we run up to that century birthday of Woodstock in 2022. And we're trying to find stories and legends and the history of it and just what things that Woodstock have stayed the same and what things have, have changed over the years. Now, in our last episode, we gave you a little pr preview of this episode. We dropped in a, uh, a legend story as told by Mike Sherman. Mike's going to join us here again tonight. Uh, the story, perhaps the most, uh, the most famous of all the legends at uh, Camp Woodstock, Woodstock Charlie. Uh, that was our first little prelude to this. But then tonight, I'm joined by some other Woodstocks, in addition, Woodstockers, in addition to Mike, to capture some of the other legends and stories. Some of these I'd heard. And some of these are, are new to me. So this is going to be really a lot of fun as we try to capture some of the oral history of Woodstock. But before we get into some of those legends, uh, let's go around and we'll get everybody to introduce themselves. And maybe if you can say, uh, what, what, well, I'll, I'll drop your name and maybe where you are and when you were at Woodstock, what years you were there and, and what roles you were in. Avery, if you can go first. All right. Hi, I'm Avery. I'm in Oberlin, Ohio right now. My first summer at camp was in 2011. Um, and I've been there ever since. Most recently, I was the program director. Next, Lucy. Hi, I'm Lucy. I started going to camp in, I think, 2007, and I've been there ever since. Um, and I am in Northfield, Minnesota. I was a counselor for years, and then I was also the year director. Returning back to the podcast, he was in a prior episode. I can't remember which one, but... Uh, Ryan, can you introduce yourself? What years you were, and I guess you're also still at camp. How long you've been at Woodstock? Hi, I'm Ryan. I've been at camp since 2011 also, and I'm currently at camp in the Health Lodge. Uh, there's this guy, Mike. Mike, what? what's your affiliation with camp? I'm Mike Sherman. I think um, I've been there since 1987. George, remember <laughs> you were there with me for most of my time. So just a reminder, Mike Sherman, past director. Excellent, excellent. All right, thank you so much all for joining and, and taking up, giving some of your time to talk about some of these legends. So first, Avery, can you give me, you mentioned that you, this story of the green flame, can you maybe tell us what that legend is about? Get us, get us started here. Yeah, so the green flame story is one that's often told around a campfire. Um, often on overnights and other kind of bonding things like that. Um, so I will just get right into it. It's a pretty short story, um, not so much a ghost story, a little bit more wholesome. So for this, I want you all to imagine that you're looking into a fire. If we were at camp right now, we would be. Uh, and I want you to all look into the fire. There you'll see many different colored flames. Much like a fire, our friendships vary. The red flames, those are the most common and the least hot. Those are the people you see on the street. Maybe you smile at them, maybe you don't. Your day doesn't change as a result of their presence. But next, as the fire gets a little hotter, there are the yellow flames. Those are the people that you smile at on the street or in the hallways. Next are the white flames. They're even hotter. It takes some time for a fire to get hot enough to produce them. Those are your school or your work friends. They're the people you enjoy spending time with. They may not be in your inner circle, but you notice when they're gone and you miss them. 
The next are the blue flames, and those flames are very hot. It takes a while for the fire to get hot enough for them to be spotted. You can see them now near the embers. Those are your closest friends, your people, the ones that you turn to. You support them and they support you. Some of those people may be around the fire right now. And last are the green flames, the rarest of them all. In any fire, there are only a few, just like there are only a few, a few people throughout our lives that are our closest, truest friends, the ones that really get you. There may be some of those people around the, this fire right now. It takes a long time for a fire to get hot enough to produce a green flame. And as camp goes on and the fires of our lives burn brighter and hotter, maybe you'll find one of those green flames in the pines of Woodstock, or maybe you already have. Thank you. Avery, that was pretty masterfully told. I don't think I've ever told a story that, that wonderfully. That, that's, that's a pretty neat one. I don't think I ever heard that one at, uh, at Woodstock. I first heard that story on an overnight when I was in Unit 3 as a Pequot, um, and it stuck with me ever since. It's one that we tell often, um, both at Staff Week on our overnight and just on overnights in general. It's kind of the perfect campfire story. Very neat. I've heard, I've heard Joel Steinman telling that story at closing campfire before any of you were probably born, except for George. Yeah, I first heard Avery tell that story at staff week like three years ago. And I always think of that story. I've always tried to tell it to my campers and I could never do it as well as her. Too many colors. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move to a our, maybe our next legend. Lucy, you have a couple that we, uh, we set you up with ahead of time here. Which, which one do you want to jump in with first? I guess I could start with um, Charcoal Boy. I think that's a really popular story around camp these past couple years. Okay, what's the, I've never heard that story in, until this started floating around an email a few weeks ago. What, what is the Charcoal Boy story? So I think part of it might just be out of convenience, um, considering how often campers will ask, why don't we have a cabin four? Um, and this story is kind of the answer to that question. Uh, kind of a roundabout answer, but it shares a lot of similarities with um, Woodstock Charlie as well. So the camper's name varies, but I'll just go with Jimmy because that's the one that I've heard pretty recently. Um, basically, what happened was Jimmy arrived at camp like campers do every summer, and it was his first year at camp, and he was in cabin four. He was really quiet. Um, he had a hard time making friends, a hard time adjusting to camp with all the, the hustle and bustle of the dining hall. And he kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit. Um, but the other kids in his cabin had been coming to camp together for a while and they knew each other very well already. So they didn't really bother getting to know Jimmy that much. Um, they ignored him. They liked to pick on him. He was kind of an easy target in that way. And even his counselors didn't really notice him too well. They sometimes joined in with the uh, campers playing tricks on Jimmy, and they didn't think much of it. They thought that they were just playing a joke. They didn't really see how it affected him. Um, one thing that they often picked on Jimmy for was falling asleep during reflections because he was so exhausted at the end of this day that once the lights turned off and the counselors lit the candle, he just fell asleep. Uh, but one night while Jimmy was asleep, the other boys decided it would be really funny to try to tie him up. 
And so that night during reflections, Jimmy fell asleep early as usual and the counselors shuffled off to their bunks um, going to bed, but they forgot the candle. The candle is left on the floor and the boys in all of their mischievousness tied up Jimmy thinking it would be a really fun joke. Uh, they love to pick on him. And that candle was still sitting in the middle of the cabin. And as one of the boys left the cabin in the middle of the night to use the bathroom, he knocked the candle over. And in a rush, the dry wood of the cabin just lit up as quickly as could be. The cabin was in flames and these boys rushed out as quick as they could, grabbing their friends, bringing them with them. And the counselors rushed out, awoken in the night by this fire. And they stood outside kind of dumbfounded, like, how did this happen? They didn't notice that one kid was missing and that child was Jimmy. And they stood outside the cabin with a, this sinking horror. The counselors realized that they had left him inside and that their responsibility had been left inside. And they stood and watched those flames and had that sinking feeling that he was already gone. And to this day, in that spot where cabin four used to be, it's said that his charcoal-covered figure still wanders through those woods around, around those trails. Um, this shadowed figure still haunts those woods, especially on really dark and quiet nights. You might even hear him calling out for help from those woods, see that shadowed figure moving through the woods. Lucy, did you have another one? Yeah, I'm not sure I remember it too well, but I've definitely heard it a few times about um, the LITs and Chapel Man, but anybody else can jump in as well. Yeah, go ahead and tell us that one. Sure. So um, I vividly remember this story partly because I spent um, the summer as the yurt director walking around Chapel instead of through it. Um, that's how much this story stuck with me. But I um, heard this story, I think, first as an LIT. And the way it starts off is with all the LITs arriving for the summer, as they do, and they become closer and closer. They love to spend time together over at Roskin Lodge. And they're kind of sequestered over there at the beginning of the program. So they spend a lot of time together over there by themselves. But Towards the end of the LIT program, they start to mingle with the cabins and work with the campers in the cabins. And during those times, the LITs often stay on main camp until late at night. And when all the campers go to sleep, the LITs kind of trickle out of the cabins as their uh, reflections finish up and the campers start to go to sleep. They kind of move out in little groups and head back to Roskin Lodge to go to bed. So these LITs were a little bit skittish sometimes. They like to try to travel in a big group because of how dark and silent the woods were at night. Sometimes you'd hear crack of a twig or a little rustle, not really sure what it was. And they got pretty spooked by this. So they would wait at the um, Coffee Creek Bridge waiting for the other LITs to come out of their cabin. They would all walk together in one big group um, just for the security of it, just that feeling of safety of being in the group. 
And of course, somebody had to be in the front and they would bring their flashlights and walk down the trail together to go back to Roskin Lodge and talk, go to bed, hang out together after their day on main camp. And one night, one of their friends decided to scare this group and um, waited, instead of waiting at Coffee Creek Bridge with everyone, he just decided to go ahead and he scared the whole group as they were walking through chapel and they thought it was great fun, whatever. And they just continued on to bed after getting this little scare from their friend. A couple of them were a little angry, but most of them took it pretty well. And the next night they had seen a pair of red sort of lights in the back row of the chapel as they were walking back. And they looked and everyone was there. Nobody, nobody was gone. Everybody was accounted for. And they saw this, this pair of red lights kind of looked like eyes or the eyes of an animal, something like that. And they didn't think too much of it. They thought, surely it's just an animal. It's a little weird, but they kept walking and they walked back to Roskin Lodge just like every other night before. But they kept coming back through chapel each night as the campers went to bed, same as usual, reflections closed up. And each night, those red eyes moved up a row in the chapel. And each night they got a little bit more suspicious of what was happening here, but they thought for sure that it was just another joke that one of their friends was playing on them, just like before. What else could it possibly be? But one night those eyes were in the front row and they heard a snap of a twig, a rustle in the woods, and they all kind of looked around and the people with the flashlights in the front said, hey, we better get going. And they kept, they just went straight onto Roskin Lodge and they were a little bit spooked, but everybody seemed okay. And as they were going to bed, they realized that one friend was missing and they roused the LIT directors. They said, he's missing, What? Where? where could he possibly be? And in the morning, when they came back down through chapel, they found their friend's body across the podium in the chapel. And now they knew this, this was no joke. And this trip back became more and more spooky, I guess. They knew this was not a friend playing a trick on them. Um, and each night as they went back, this group grew smaller and smaller, as you might imagine, now that the eyes had reached the front row. Um, they were slowly, slowly picked off one by one. And the mystery of Chapel Man, still unsolved to this day. Those those red eyes, I, I mean, what happened, right? I don't know if anyone has some insight on what happened, but I'm not quite sure. But I do know that people can sometimes see those red eyes in the back row. If they look out of the corner of their eye, they might see the glimmer of those red eyes in the back row. They might hear one of those gravel rocks in the chapel roll over, hear a snap of a twig, and you better bet they go running after they hear that or they see the glimmer of the red light out of their eye. And, and so you heard this story, and because of that, you avoided walking through the chapel. You would, you would you'd take roundabouts to skip to getting to the chapel because of the story. 
Well, uh, so I first heard this story when I was probably, I think I, I was um, in cabin 18 or something. I was about 11. I, I thought it was a super creepy story. Um, and it kind of just stuck with me. But I think the thing that really did me in was that when I was in LIT, um, people would often stay in chapel to scare me, um, including our LIT directors. And that experience <laughs> really stuck with me as well. And then again, as, as I was a counselor, um, some of my friends knew that I really didn't like chapel. And they would, I was an easy target, let's just say. So yeah, I, I quite enjoy the road around the dining hall. It's a nice walk, you know? <laughs> I'll say that it has become a bit of a tradition for LITs to kind of hide in the woods and scare people. And it's absolutely a nuisance to everyone. Sound carries <laughs> right across the lake. You're like, why are they screaming? Um, but it is a fun, a fun tale. Mike, you have any other insight on Chapel Man? No, just that I think it was invented by Bob Pinto, who none of you would probably know. Um, and it was uh, the idea was to scare the LITs walking back to Roskin. Or at that time, it was probably just the cabins before Roskin. Okay, I think this this next one, the, uh, we're going to have Ryan pitch this up, but I think a couple people have a, some some additional takes on this. And this is this is one that I think I just started to hear as I was in my last couple of years of, of Woodstock. Ryan, uh, if you can tell us the story of Isabella. It'd be my pleasure. So the story of Isabella, you have to imagine you're at where I would tell it. So I'd usually tell it to my biking class. And right after the biking shed, when you get on Camp Road, you'd come to the foundation of an old house. You could see the stones around that used to be the walls. And you could see the basement or the crevice where the house used to lay and the basement used to be. So when we're there, I would begin to tell the story of Isabella. Isabella and her father lived here a very long time ago. Isabella and her father had, uh, Isabella had no mother. Somehow she disappeared one day and her father did everything in his power to protect Isabella from facing the same thing. He wouldn't let her leave the house unless she was with him. So Isabella was a teenager and really hadn't socialized or experienced the world much for herself. And this created a sort of resentment towards her father. One day, their well stopped working and Isabella called a well, or Isabella's father called a well digger over to fix the well. While Isabella's father was at work as a blacksmith, Isabella began to talk with the well digger he was a guy who was around her age and they really hit it off. And they talked so much that they even discussed running away together. Isabella told him all about how she was unhappy and felt trapped. And the well digger was fine taking her away, but he, the only problem was he had no money. And Isabella told him that she has money. She just has to get it from her father and she will that night. So that night, the well digger waited outside of Isabella's house while Isabella went into her basement to look for the gold, the gold bars she knew her father had stashed. 
while she was down there, there was no light, and she was scrummaging through all of his stuff, and she made enough noise to wake him. Isabella's father grabbed his gun and went downstairs into the basement, expecting a robber. When he was downstairs, he couldn't get a clear picture on who was in this basement, but he could tell someone was going through his stuff, looking for something, and he fired his gun. After, he turned on his light to see that it was his daughter, Isabella, and everything he had done to protect her was all failed because he was the one to kill her because he was so sad and he felt as if he had nothing left to live for, he then killed himself. And the only reason that we know of this story today is because the well digger was outside the whole time waiting for Isabella. Thank you. Hey, Mike, I know you have some insight on, and, and Lucy, I think you have some insight too, probably on, on the Isabella story. What, what's some of the background on that, Mike? Yeah, it's a very interesting background. Most of the people listening to this know uh, that in 18, I'm sorry, 1989, Tom Tryon wrote a best-selling book about Camp Woodstock um, called The Night of the Moonbow. Well, he was having a hard time finishing that book, and he came to camp to try to um, get his creative juices going again. There's a long story involved there. But part of that story is he told me that um, when he was a camper, his, and he was a camper in, in 1937, long time ago, and the house was still standing. His counselor would take he and his cabin with a lantern down Camp Road to the haunted house. The counselor would lay the lantern down, and he'd make everybody sit down around it, and he would tell them to look into the house, and he would tell the story um, pretty much as Ryan just um, explained it. Well, meanwhile, there's a counselor, as you can well imagine, um, in the house. And at the point in the story, as Tom is telling me this story, he says at that point in the story that he's talking about the death of Isabella uh, wandering around was the, uh, with the lantern going from room to room was the cue for the counselor in the house to start walking around with a lantern. <laughs> And Tom Tryon, he was maybe 11 years old when this happened, started writing scary novels. And I'm sure that that story that the counselors told him was uh, much to his success. He was a best-selling author. He wrote about other things too, but he wrote uh, several on, on, on really on scary stories. So that was the, the genesis of the Isabella story. He didn't make it up. His counselors in the 1930s did, pretty much just as... Uh, Ryan has told. Um, and I can also remember, this was a long time ago, but when a counselor named Chad Ricketts, some of you might remember Chad, they were listening to this, uh, we had a teen-wide world weekend with a bunch of uh, kids from inner city Hartford. And so <laughs> Chad wanted me to take the kids, uh, this was a weekend that we used to do with uh, kids from the Wilson Gray Y and from the north end of Hartford. And so I took a bunch of those kids up and I told that story at the edge of the uh, of the haunted house, and I didn't know he was going to do this. But Chad was all dressed in a white robe with a lantern. He stood up inside the foundation of the house, and every kid watching bolted back to the camp. So 
It's a scary story, <laughs> but it's even scarier if you happen to be there. And jo uh, George, we got some more stuff we can tell at a later time. I know we're probably running pretty late here about that haunted house and some other stories about a day we took jogging by it. Uh, but yeah, this is for now. A lot of, lot of archaeology behind that as well. Lucy, do you have anything else on the, uh, or, or Avery, do you guys have anything else on the Isabella story? I think Ryan told it really well, but I just could comment on what Mike said about um, counselors bringing the kids up to the house because when I was a camper, the same sort of thing was done with the Sloan house. Um, and that's a whole other separate story, but um, they'd bring us in there. This is, It's t been torn down for years now, but they'd bring us in there, super creepy house, tell us the story of the Sloan house. Um, and then a counselor would pull this fishing line attached to the lights, which I, I found out about like years later, make the lights start to shake. And we like ran out of there like there's, you know, whatever at our heels. I, I was, I must have been like nine or 10 the first time this happened to me. And I was like, I'm finished. Like, this is the scariest thing ever. So it seems to be a little bit of a tradition we have going on here at the, the, haunted, the haunted house kind of gags. Yeah, I think uh, scary stories have certainly been a, a, a long part of, uh, of, of camp history. And, uh, he lost his oars in the storm, and as he was reaching for that, his wrist. This has been a lot of fun. I think there's a lot of other legends that we're going to look to visit. Uh, Lucy, you mentioned the one on the Sloan House. I know there's the, the entire legend of Oscar that we're hoping to get maybe Carrie Green on the podcast to talk about. And then if there's there's some other legends as well that we'll look to uh, to incorporate. So, But I want to thank you all for your time tonight. And, and again... For any of you that have some oral history, be it a legend or a story or something about your experience at Woodstock when you were there, let us know and we'd love to get you on the podcast. We'd love to hear from, you know, for example, one of the things, one of the podcasts I love to do is get uh, generations of Woodstockers. So grandparents to parents to kids that have been at Woodstock. We'd love to get people that want to sing songs on this podcast. Um, I don't got, I don't have a lot of people that are willing to like just put their voice out there and, and, and sing all, all the tunes, but, uh, I'm working on it. So any ideas that you have folks out there that you're listening to on the podcast, please let us know. And again, stay tuned because there's gonna be a lot of information coming out, uh, shortly after we record this one in regards to the hundredth and all of the celebrations leading up to that and how you can be a part of it. So again, you've been listening to the Woodstock Whispers podcast and we hope to talk to you soon.